let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, as we think of the gift our Lord Jesus gave us in baptism, uh, we pray in your mercy that you would convict us of our sin, of the reality of your judgment, and of that even greater reality of full and complete forgiveness through faith in our Lord Jesus. Help me to speak your word truly and clearly and help us all to understand, to test what we hear and to receive the truth with faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. Uh, you can think of the uh, Nicene Creed, which we say each communion and uh, which we've been looking at over the last few months, like the coronation crown, the crown of St Edward's, a symbol of great authority made up of precious, priceless gems, or in the case of the creed, precious, priceless truths, where the beauty of each is enhanced by being set in relation to each other. And in the second last sentence of the creed, we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We have one of these priceless treasures, the truth that there is forgiveness of sins and the truth that this forgiveness is found only by believing in the living God confessed in the creed, the one God, Father, Son and Spirit. Now is your soul stirred by the thought that there is forgiveness of sins? Does the possibility of forgiveness excite you? It should, for the forgiveness the creed is speaking of is full and final forgiveness, forgiveness by God, the forgiveness that will mean there is nothing to condemn on the last day. Now that thought, that thought of forgiveness does excite me. It fills me with great thankfulness. You see, once you're convicted of your sin, that you have done wrong, not just that you feel guilty or ashamed or you've let others down, but that objectively you have done wrong, wrong which deserves punishment. Forgiveness is something you long for. And once you're convicted that your sin has wronged the living God who sees the thoughts of our hearts, whose judgment is always just, who is almighty and will call all that we have done to account to give our sin what it deserves, the forgiveness of God is something you long for. And I am convicted of both. I can look at things I've done before and after becoming a Christian and know I did wrong and have seen the harm and the hurt done in the lives of others, people made in God's image who deserve respect and love, the harm and hurt done by what I have done, the carelessness, the selfish thoughtlessness about others' interests, the unkind words and worse. Convicted not just that I've done wrong things, but I've done wrong things because I wanted to, because my heart was wrong, because I was determined to ignore God or knowing what God had commanded was determined to do instead what I wanted to do. So I'm convicted of sin and I'm convicted of judgment. It's not just a word, but a felt reality. The fearful certainty that there is no escaping a reckoning with the just and holy God 
my creator, who has the right to both judge and to condemn me. Now for me and perhaps hopefully for many of you, the knowledge that there is forgiveness of sins by God is exciting, has been life-changing. But for some of you, I know, if you're generous, you might be thinking, well, that's good for you, but it's not something I'm really excited about. Forgiveness, just another piece of religious jargon. And if you're not generous, you might be thinking, oh, here he goes again, sin and judgment, my two least favourite topics, and he is oversharing about his own tortured soul. There's a case for psychoanalysis here. You might be thinking that. Now, if that's you, if you're in the not excited by the possibility of forgiveness camp, can I ask you just to think with me for a little while about why someone might not share my excitement about forgiveness, not be excited about forgiveness, even perhaps as they confess in the creed the existence of that forgiveness. You see, it is a shame to have a great treasure and ignore it, to put the money in the attic and not in the best room. It's a shame to have great wealth, isn't it, and live like a pauper, to be struggling with a car that's always breaking down or living always anxious about your bills when you have access to millions. It would be a shame to know that there is forgiveness from God and not be able to rejoice in it. So let me suggest four reasons you may not be excited and people may not be excited about forgiveness. Firstly, for some, sin is not an issue. That may be because you believe there's no God, or at least not a God who judges, or it may be because you think you're basically a good person. So sin's not an issue for you, though it is, of course, for others. Let's take each in turn. Now, if you believe there's no God or not a God who judges, sin plainly won't be an issue for you because sin's defined in relation to God. It's ignoring God, trying to keep him out of your life. It's doing the things God says you shouldn't, defining right and wrong for yourself. Oh, it's living life with the good things God has given you and never giving thanks to God. It's always making sure you are number one, not God, in all you do and say that you're trusting yourself, not God. And if there's no God, then you don't need to be concerned about his judgment, let alone be excited by forgiveness. Oh, you may still admit you do wrong things, let yourself down by not living up to your own standards and are probably convinced that others do wrong things to you. And yes, you may still have to grapple with what to do when others wrong you or how to heal relationships when you wrong them. But God's judgment and forgiveness from God don't come into the picture. And that, let me say, and not condescendingly, that's sad because it's not true. God's judgment is part of the picture of everyone's life in the present and at the end. And the living God's judgment is a certainty. Jesus' resurrection guarantees it. This is Paul speaking to the crowd at Athens. Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn back to him, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he's appointed and he's provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. God has raised Jesus. There is a judgment. Oh, and it's sad because the universe is actually poorer, uglier 
and without hope, where God is not the active judge. You see, where God's not judge, if Putin dies in his bed, that's it. He escapes judgment. Hitler, by taking his own life, has escaped accountability for the atrocities he's authored. He's defiant, master of his fate until the end. Oh, you might want to invoke karma, people do today, but how do you know? How do you know if in some future life, in some way, Hitler will receive what his deeds deserve? And where in karma's personal accountability, let alone hope, where karma operates as an impersonal, relentless force that knows no mercy? And if God's not judge, upholding his standards, which are the standards for all his creatures, then right and wrong just become arbitrary, reduced to personal preferences or just expressions of human power. All we're left with to bring order to our world are human attempts at justice. But who decides what's just? (coughs) Many think they know but often are assuming the legacy of the Christian faith they're seeking to deny. And our nation's going to face that question soon, isn't it? Who decides what's just? Take fairness. Why do you think all people are equal and are to be treated equally? Other cultures and other times have not made that assumption. It's the legacy of thinking all are made in God's image. It's not the fruit of the Darwinian struggle for survival. And human justice is frail, finite and flawed, just like us. The world is poorer where God is not judge. Now, I know it's intoxicating to reject God and believe you're accountable only to yourself, but you are poorer where God is not judge. So if that's you, why don't you reconsider your rejection of God? And if you want someone to test your ideas with, come and talk to me or one of the other pastors or Christian friends you know. God will judge each of us justly, give to each of us what our deeds deserve. But you might know that and still not be excited about forgiveness because you are sure you're a good person and what you deserve is good from God. Now, I think it's possible to consider yourself a good person You know, when you compare yourself to selected others or when you're measuring yourself by your own rules or you're willing to accept your own excuses. You know those excuses. I was tired when I snapped at her and said those nasty things, but that's not the real me. Oh, sure, I helped myself to the work supplies, but they've got so much and I needed them. And nobody's perfect making it sound with that last phrase as if God's standards like thou shalt not steal are somehow unreasonable. You might be trying hard to do good, even proud about how hard you try and be good, but actually the measure is God's standards, not yours. God who sees not just what we do, but the envy, the pride, the jealousy, the anger, the bitterness of our hearts. And God says, there is no one who is righteous, Not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. You may not think you really need forgiveness, but God does. And he knows you better than you know yourself. 
But as well as thinking sin's not an issue for you, there are other reasons you might not be excited about forgiveness. You might, secondly, think forgiveness is easy. If that's the case, it may be because you have suffered only small wrongs, never been deeply, personally hurt. Or perhaps you've mistaken forgiveness for just ignoring those who have wronged you. Forgiveness is costly, and the more personal the injury, the costlier it is. It is costly to forego vindication, costly not to exact from another what you're entitled to. We know that with monetary debts, cost to forgive them. But the cost is actually greater with personal ones, where you have, say, suffered betrayal, had your reputation slandered, been treated with contempt. It's costly to forego your right to have the wrong punished and so to have your place in your own eyes and the eyes of others restored. And that's a cost that can be enduring where you forgive. Or thirdly, your only experience of forgiveness might be a diminished one, the compulsory forgiveness authorities, like your parents try and impose, you know, like when the parent intervenes in their children's squabble and says to one, say sorry, and to the other, she said sorry, now forgive her. Well, the words are there. The fighting stopped, but the anger and hurt, the resentment bubbles on and you feel it. That's not the forgiveness the prodigal receives, is it? Now you might remember the story. He's rejected his father. He's shown contempt for him. He's squandered his father's possessions and it's all gone belly up. He's, you know, starving. And he decides he'll go to his father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he gets up. He returns to confess and you see there he gets half his words out. Father, I've sinned against heaven your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he can finish, he's restored as son by the father, the best ring, the robe, the feast, the father who has already run to him and embraced him. Now that is forgiveness, enthusiastically offered, life-restoring, joy-overflowing. That is forgiveness, to be excited about the forgiveness that God shows us. Or fourthly, you might not be excited about forgiveness, even though you're here saying that you're forgiven because you've taken it for granted. Growing up in the church, you've considered it your birthright. You haven't paused too long to think about your sin, often been protected from the consequences of your own selfishness and willfulness by loving parents, and so never faced your own heart. And when you have thought about it, you've just assumed forgiveness would always be there. There are reasons why you might not be as excited as me about the possibility of forgiveness by the living God. But none of those are good reasons, are they? Sin is serious and worthy of condemnation by God and you can't escape it. And real forgiveness of our sin is costly. And it's no one's right. It's always a gift, a personal gift, a life-restoring, rich gift. Forgiveness, to be forgiven by God, is wonderful. 
As David says, blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. Forgiveness opens the door to so much, doesn't it? Good in itself, but it opens the door to peace with God, to sure hope, to life. And here, wonderfully, the creed says there is forgiveness of sins and it associates it with baptism. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. You see, baptism's been associated with forgiveness from the very beginning of the Christian church, the Christian message. So Peter says to a crowd convicted of their sin, repent and be baptised, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Ananias says to Saul, now convicted of his sin, why are you delaying? Get up and be baptised and wash away your sins, calling on his name. In fact, baptism's been associated with forgiveness from the ministry of John the Baptist. It's John who goes into the vicinity of Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Being baptised was from the beginning of the Christian church part of the believing response to the gospel preached by John and the apostles always associated with forgiveness. But just as John the Baptist's preaching looked forward to what Jesus would do, John's baptism for forgiveness was preparatory and provisional, awaiting its fulfilment in the work of Jesus. The apostles' gospel, looking back to Jesus' death for sin and resurrection, declaring that Jesus is now Lord, well, it brought the forgiveness and still brings the forgiveness of the judge on the last day. As Peter says, all the prophets testify about him, that through his name, everyone who believes in him, him who is appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead, everyone who believes in him, receives forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness Jesus promises in the gospel to those who believe is full and final forgiveness To all who believe, it is the forgiveness that assures believers of being spared judgment, assures them of a share in God's eternal kingdom, a place in the new heaven and earth. And baptism is part of the believing response to that gospel. Confessing Jesus as Lord, believers do what Jesus commanded the apostles to do. They're baptised. They receive Baptism in the name of the Father, the Son and the Spirit summarised in Acts as baptism in Jesus' name. That is, on Jesus' authority as Son of the Father who exercises the judgment of God and gives the Holy Spirit. This baptism is a sign given to believers by Christ himself, a sign of what he does for those who believe in him. He washes them clean of the defilement of their sin by his death. That is, he forgives them, takes their sin out of the picture so that it's no longer a consideration in their relationship with God. His Father, God, does not see it. And in forgiving them, he includes them in his people, his church, by joining them by faith to himself in his death and rising. Buried with him, says St Paul, And that's what baptism is a sign of, our burial with Christ. They are raised to new life 
by the power of the Spirit. And as a sign given by the Lord Jesus, which each believer must experience for her or himself, the Lord Jesus also seals his promises to us in baptism. That is, and this going back to the old days, just as in the old days the seal on a letter assured the recipient of the letter that the content of the letter was genuinely from the author. So baptism, given by Jesus, his gift, assures those who are baptised that the promise he has spoken is genuinely his promise to them, that trusting him they are genuinely forgiven, included in his people. And baptism was non-controversial in the early church. From the beginning it was confessed to be one, one body and one spirit, just as one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. So if it's non-controversial, why did the authors of the creed include this phrase? We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. What was going on that made them want to affirm only one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Well, our issues with baptism, you know, debates about how much faith you need or how much water you need, they were not their issues. Already by this time they were baptising adults and babies. But they did have an issue and it was called Arianism. Now you may remember that we talked about it when we looked at that first phrase of the creed about Jesus. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Arianism, even though it could use the language of Jesus being the Son of God, taught like today's Jehovah's Witnesses that Jesus was not fully God but a highly exalted creature, even if the first creature through whom all other creatures were made. But he wasn't fully God. He didn't exist eternally with God. There was, they said, when he was not. And this part of the creed was written to exclude Arianism because it is inadequate to Jesus' reality, because it's inconsistent with the gospel. And the issues facing the writers of the creed, those early bishops, was if you were baptised believing in the Arian Jesus, this exalted creature... Were you forgiven? Were you included in God's church? That's the issue they were facing. If you were baptised, believing in this Aryan Jesus, were you forgiven? See, the issue they were facing was an issue of who had the authority to forgive sins fully and finally to give this wonderful saving gift of God's forgiveness. By including this phrase, we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, they were saying baptism cannot be separated from what we believe and the Lord we confess. If there is one faith and one Lord, there is only one baptism. So this is not a statement about the form of baptism, nor the formula used in baptism for the Arians had inherited the use of Matthew 28 like the rest of the 4th century church. Now, this statement in the creed is about the faith which you must have if you are to undergo baptism and receive what baptism is a sign of, the forgiveness of your sins and union with Christ. 
The one baptism for the forgiveness of sins only exists where it's in the name of the one God, Father, Son and Spirit, and the one Lord confessed in the creed, the eternal Son who is of one being with the Father. And this was not splitting hairs. You see, those believers knew that Jesus of the Arians could not save. Who can forgive sins but God alone, the Pharisees had said, when Jesus forgives the sin of the paralytic. And they were right. Only God can give the full and final forgiveness of sin against God. No creature can. If it just depends on a creature, the word of a creature, there might be another word, a word of God behind that. Only the creature, only God can give God's forgiveness. Only the Lord Jesus has confessed in the creed, the only Son of the Father, God from God, true God from true God, one with the Father and the Spirit in the work of salvation. Only he could forgive fully and finally, give the forgiveness that means we will never be excluded from God's love. And only the Lord Jesus, true God and true man, can save. Only he, truly human, truly sinless, truly Son of God, could die the death that made forgiveness certain, for it made forgiveness just. God bearing in himself the cost of our forgiveness, the cost of upholding his righteousness even as he forgives. And only the Lord Jesus can speak the word that spares from judgment, for only he exercises the judgment of God as the Son of God. And only he who has life in himself and can give life can be the second Adam, unite us to himself in a new humanity that can live in the presence of the Father forever. You see, the bishops who wrote the creed were not like our modern liberals. I don't know if you've read them, but they're always content to leave things fussy, fuzzy, undefined, so that they can include as many as possible, no matter what they believe. These bishops who wrote the creed were against false hope, hope in things or beings that cannot save. And so they were saying it's not enough that people use the same form or the formula. To be included in the church of God, they had to believe the gospel, what God had revealed of himself in saving through the Son, our Lord Jesus. There is, they said, only one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, only one faith, one confession of God where baptism is a sign and seal of the forgiveness offered in the gospel to all who believe. For there is only one Lord, the glorious Lord Jesus, we confess in the creed. The only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, life from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father, through him all things were made who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was made man, who for our sake suffered, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered and died. On the third day, he rose again. In accordance with the scriptures, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. Only this Lord Jesus 
has authority to forgive the sins of all who repent and believe that he died for our sins, was buried and rose again. Only this Lord Jesus saves. So when you say, we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, you are confessing the Lord Jesus, the incarnate Son, forgives the sins of all those who repent and believe his gospel and show that by receiving on his authority baptism as the sign and assurance of their forgiveness. And that is a confession that should excite you and thrill you every time you say there is forgiveness for sins, full and final, that we can know now by believing the gospel of Jesus. And I do hope you know the joy of that full and final forgiveness for yourself every day. And if you don't and want to, because you know you've sinned and you fear to get what you sin, you get what your sins deserve on that last day, well, do what Jesus says. Repent, turn away from trusting yourself and living to please yourself. Believe the Lord Jesus, that he has died for your sins and lives now with all authority, authority to forgive and judge and call out to him as the living Lord Jesus for the forgiveness he gives. And that's as simple as saying, Lord Jesus, I am sorry I've lived ignoring you and doing what's wrong. Please forgive me and make me one of your people. You can do that. You can do it here. You can do it now. You can do it at home. But if you do, come and talk or talk with a believer you know. And even if the knowledge that Jesus can give full and final forgiveness does not fill you with joy now as it should, I hope you'll remember that he can give that forgiveness. If God in his mercy brings you to know both the reality of your sin, that you have done wrong that deserves his condemnation and will never be excused, and brings you to feel, to be convinced of, the reality of his judgment from which you can never escape brings you that conviction before it's too late. For on that day, the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus, who alone has authority to give now the judgment and forgiveness of the last day, on that day, his forgiveness is your and my only hope. But brothers and sisters, if this confession does fill you with joy, the joy of being forgiven then know when you make this confession, you're also saying something about Jesus' church, the church you can only come to belong to by faith in Jesus and obediently receiving baptism, the sign he gives of your being included by faith in his people. You're saying, you see, the church is the community of the baptised, is the community of forgiven sinners and only people who, and the only people who belong are people who know they are forgiven sinners, know their unworthiness in themselves of belonging to Jesus' church. And that has some consequences. This confession has consequences. It means, firstly, we recognise in Jesus' church that all are equal in status through faith. You're all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Those who have baptized, been baptised into Christ have been clothed with Christ. No Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you're one in Christ Jesus. Each one of us, you see, who sits here, who says we belong to Jesus' church, has only one thing to boast of, to be proud of, 
and that is our Saviour, who has given us the privilege of being God's children. And so amongst us, there's no place for divisions over race, gender, wealth, beauty, age, those divisions that pit us against each other and which in some form often the world seeks to foster. Oh, and there's no place for competing with each other for recognition and importance. All sons of God in Christ Jesus, what matters for our treatment of each other, for our acceptance of each other, is our new identity in Christ. Being God's daughters and sons determines from now on how you and I should value and treat each other, whatever our background. And if we know that, if we know we're forgiven sinners, well, then we're freed, aren't we, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than ourselves to look to the interests of others. We are free to welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed us to God's glory. And that's a wonderful welcome Christ has given us, isn't it? You see the joy of it in the story of the prodigal, in the father's embrace. And secondly, the church as a community, the baptised. When you say that, when you say that, we believe in that one baptism, you're saying the church is and must be the community of the forgiving because it is the community of the forgiven. We can be no other for Jesus who gives the forgiveness of God, teaches us to enjoy that forgiveness, we must forgive. Knowing the joy our souls are being forgiven, our hearts must incline always to forgive. And we have to be a forgiving community, not in words only. You know, liking forgiveness is idea and everybody likes it, but never practising it. Each of us has to individually be committed to loving one another enough to practise Luke 17. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he repents, sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And it is you. The pastors can't do this for you. But you'd be surprised how often we hear about people's falling out with each other. We may be able to clarify whether what's offended you is a sin or not. We might be able to help you with words to raise the issue with the other person. Oh, yeah, we can encourage you to trust the Lord Jesus to do something he commands you, which is difficult by reminding you of his love for you and his death, of his care for you, of the power of his spirit at work in you, of his forgiveness in you, but we can't do this for you. Because you love and trust the Lord Jesus who loved you enough to die for you to bring you forgiveness, you need to do it. Your brother sins against you, you rebuke him, and if he repents, Forgive him. Now we'll say these words. One baptism for the forgiveness of sins and remember that we're only Jesus' church because we've been forgiven together next Sunday before we come to the Lord's table. So let them stir you up now both to thankfulness but also to seek reconciliation with those whom you have wronged 
or to forgive those who have wronged you. Because it is a wonderful, joyous thing to know the full and final forgiveness of God through believing the gospel of his son and to receive the sign of that and of his welcome in eating and drinking together at the Lord's table. And it's also a wonderful thing to be now by our Saviour's grace the community he wants, the community of the forgiven and the forgiving. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray in your mercy that each of us would know for ourselves the reality of being forgiven through trusting Jesus, that by your grace we would know the seriousness of our sin, the certainty of your judgment and the wonder of what you have done for us in Christ and the gift he gives us as we turn back to him and call out to him the gift of full and complete forgiveness. And Father, we pray knowing that, confessing that to be true of ourselves, in your mercy, make us a forgiving community. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.